SOJ. I guess Brian Braddock is Captain Britain again? I thought he was in another dimension or the future or something. He got lost in the time stream for a while, but Rachel swapped out with him, and that's how she became Mother Ascani. Oh, yeah, I remember that. He had super long hair for a while when that happened, didn't he? Yeah, and he was going by Britannic for a bit. Um, it, it was an interesting phase. But it happened again after that, right? He and Megan both. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what you're talking about. Yeah, the two of them were ruling Otherworld for a while, actually. That's a hell of a promotion. Well, you know, Brian's got ties to Otherworld royalty and friends in high places. Plus, unbeknownst to him, Kang was actually pulling some strings. Kang the Conqueror? I didn't know he had Otherworld ties. Dude, Kang has ties to pretty much everyone and everywhere at this point. Still, Otherworld might have been out of even Kang's league if he hadn't had help. From Roma? From Widget. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 182 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to some comics we are so excited to tell you about. But first, a small announcement. Sort of announcement. We've announced this already, but we're re-announcing that we are going to be at Emerald City Comic Con. That's March 1st through 4th. It is in Seattle, Washington. It is awesome. We are going to be tabling. We do not have our table number yet for complicated reasons, but it exists. We are assured that it exists. We'll be there. We'll have shirts and zines and buttons and all of the usual nonsense, plus ourselves, plus my mom for two days, which is going to be super rad. I talked her into cosplaying with me. We made a bunch of her costume last weekend when I was in Sarasota. It's going to be really awesome. Very excited. And yeah, and we're also going to be doing a live show on Saturday in addition to a handful of other panels. Hopefully you can come if you are going to be in Seattle and can't make it to the con or can. We're also going to be having our, our usual Emerald City meetup slash birthday party at Phoenix Comics. Details on that as they come up. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. Emerald City is one of my very favorite shows. It is. It is indeed. It's, it's a great convention. In a lot of ways, while it's not it's, it's not, not in a place that's ever been either of our hometown. I kind of think of it as our home show, just because it's the first one that we really had much presence at. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same way. But other exciting things. So, from its start, we have been covering Excalibur. You know, started out written by Chris Claremont and drawn by Alan Davis. Has had a number of questionable to very good fill-ins. And for a lot of that time... It's been one of our favorites, and our consistent favorite aspect of it from the beginning was Alan Davis's artwork, and here is where it steps up a notch. Now, there are artists who are fantastic artists and okay-ish writers, and there are, there are artists who are fantastic artists and reasonably good writers, and then there's Alan Davis on Excalibur. For serious. Like, as much as I love the Claremont Davis run of Excalibur, and I do, it's really good, this is actually my favorite run that the book ever, ever had. So we, in fact, have Alan Davis writing the book and drawing the book. I mean, we have like an inker and a colorist and a letterer, but Alan Davis is running the show and it is great. Yeah. One of the things that comes through in Davis's run, I think, is how much of a co collaboration and how present his voice was during the era when Claremont was writing as well. And while I know he talked about, you know, learning a lot from Claremont and then picking up and tying off a lot of Claremont's loose plot threads, following through on many, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really gratifying to see those parts coming back. And man, I got to say, this is, this is my Excalibur. 
the beginning is good. The beginning is great. I love it a lot. But when I think of the characters and their voices and the definitive moments, this is what I consistently go back to. This era, this team, and definitely this writing. So it's been a pretty long time since we've talked about Excalibur. Uh, Where did we leave off? Well, previously on Excalibur. After being separated from Shadowcat for a long, long time in the process of the cross-time caper, all five members of the team are finally back together. We've got... Mystically empowered Guardian of England, Brian Braddock, Captain Britain. Empathic fairy metamorph, Megan. Avatar of infinite cosmic power, Rachel Summers, Phoenix. Charmingly fuzzy blue swashbuckling teleporter, Kurt Wagner, Nightcrawler. Often tangible spunky teenage genius, Kitty Pride, Shadowcat. And dimension hopping robot head widget, plus tiny purple dragon Lockheed, and a whole bevy of other sidekicks, antagonists, and friends, many of whom we'll be seeing now. Speaking of which... We're going to be bringing back my very favorite antagonists, semi-antagonists, kind of antagonists. Oh, yes. Those being Technet, sort of Excalibur's nemesis team, I guess. Technet are a bunch of wacky and splendid alien bounty hunters led by gigantic blue lady Gatecrasher. And their job thus far has been to capture Phoenix on behalf of Omniversal Majestrix, Her Royal Wyness, Opal Luna Satire 9, who's basically in charge of the multiverse and definitely in charge of the Captain Britain Corps, but who, when she last encountered Phoenix, let her go. So no one's quite sure what's going on with that, but but TechNet is still on the job. Indeed they are. Now, a lot has been reset in Excalibur, just as it's been reset across the entire X-universe around this era, around late 1991, early 1992. In this case, in no particular order, Nightcrawler can now teleport frequently and far without hurting himself. He'd had a teleportation really messed with way back in the day in the Mutant Massacre. The Warwolves, antagonists from the very beginnings of the series, who were hunting Phoenix on behalf of extra-dimensional producer Mojo have been redefeated and exiled. And the Soul Sword, which was passed on to Kitty after her best friend Ilyana Rasputin was de-aged at the end of Inferno, has been returned to Limbo, which severs Kitty's ties to that realm and takes a whole lot of confusing plots sort of off the table for a while. Most importantly, Excalibur has finally worked out how to use telephones and thus knows for sure that the X-Men are in fact alive and well rather than dead. So that's what's going on in Earth-616. But outside, in the Marvel offices, there was some interesting stuff going on, too. Alan Davis was, wasn't was originally supposed to be writing solo, was he? He was going to be co-plotting. With Paul Neary, who was also going to be inking the book. And from what I understand, they were supposed to take over shortly after Claremont left. Possibly right after. I'm not so sure about that one. Right. But the ex- the exchange rate plummeted, and it basically wasn't worth Neary's time to do the book anymore. So Davis basically had to find a new inker and pretty much start over. At which point Scott Lobdell took over as fill-in writer for quite a while. We've covered all of his issues. And as we've discussed, he reset and resolved a few plot points at Davis's request. So here we have Davis taking over as writer on a book he really just drew for a long time. And I gotta say, he does a damn fine job, like you mentioned earlier, aping Claremont's style while turning it into something very much his own. Um, There's an article by Augie DeBleek Jr. on Comic Book Resources who described this run as the greatest and most professional fanfic of all time. And I kind of agree, but like not in a bad way at all. I disagree wholeheartedly. Really? Yeah, I think that to describe it as fanfic is to massively discount the presence and role of Davis's voice in the original run. So 
much of the tone of that book, so much of the characters' voices, so much of the pacing, so much of the structure. And we know so much of, you know, the places that Claremont went because it was heavily collaborative were Davis. I mean, Claremont was very much there and present, and this is Davis running solo. But to describe it as fan fiction, to imply that he's just riffing on something that was primarily someone else's work is, I think, an incredibly, incredibly short-sighted way to look at a comic that has such a clear artistic voice from the start. You definitely do see an extremely different tone when somebody like Ron Lim or Chris Wozniak is penciling, it's true. Well, and Davis is such, such a strong storyteller, and so much, again, of the tone and the the visual voice stay consistent between his and Claremont's um, collaborative run and... Davis' solo run. And also, you know, you see carried over from his other work with other creators. So, for example, his work on Captain Britain. Like, I think there's a strong tendency, especially in contemporary looks at comics and contemporary writing about comics, to look at writers as the primary creative force and kind of discount the contribution of artists. You see it a lot in mainstream media coverage of comics. And it's something that within the industry itself kind of ebbs and flows in different eras. Like in the time that we're talking about in the early 90s, superhero comics were very much artist driven and artists were seen as the primary force and writers as kind of incidental. And we're kind of in a period of reversal of that now where writers are seen as as the main draw. And I think both of those approaches are really mostly wildly inaccurate or should be. Comics at their best are, are fundamentally a fusion, and there's nowhere that that's truer than early Excalibur. And I think that gets uh, more complicated as well when you look at the mighty Marvel style, at the fact that, you know, writers are sending essentially plot outlines to artists, artists are drawing the pages, and then the writers are scripting on top of that. I think that gives the artists a much bigger role than many other comic creation styles do. Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 depends heavily from series to series. I don't know to what extent it did in 91, but I know that it does now. But yeah, I mean, again, comics aren't words with some illustrations. They're, they're visual storytelling. And to discount either aspect as irrelevant to the whole or as incidental or as existing solely in service to the voice of the other I think is something you can only do when you have shoddy and lopsided comics, which this, which these are not. Well, and especially now that we have the same person writing and penciling, it is a unified work. It is a force for good and glory. And oh gosh, oh golly, oh wow, I am psyched as shit about talking about this. All right, so shall we go ahead and dive in? Let's do it. Let's go into Excalibur number 42. A hatch is plotted. At the old pier in Brighton, Gatecrasher rants eloquently about how this time, this time, TechNet will get Excalibur. Uh, they've, they've been pretty hapless thus far. They have. I mean, it's not that TechNet's been ineffective. It just hasn't really worked out for them. You get the impression that they're super good at, like, being bounty hunters, basically with anybody except Excalibur. Right. That, that somewhere there's a book that they're the protagonists of, and they're always successful in that one. I want to read that book. That would be amazing. I know, right? I want to write that book. So I was looking into um, people's responses to the various X books as they were coming out, you know, around the time of the great relaunch of late 1991. Apparently, one of the objections people had to Excalibur was that TechNet was around all the time. And I just can't comprehend that. Like, how could you not love TechNet? Yes, they're silly, but like, they're awesome silly. Yeah, that is definitely a feature, not a bug. Seriously. But what is also a feature of TechNet's strategy for taking out Excalibur this time is the giant Jack Kirby-esque machine all dedicated to making a single 
a golden chicken egg, as near as we can tell? We'll hear more about that later. Now, TechNet isn't really so sure about whether Gatecrasher's plan is a good one or whether Gatecrasher's even being reasonable at all. Query status, Gatecrasher. Behavior irrational. Aye, our illustrious leader's cracked by croaky. New leader we need. Part of what I really love about TechNet is just how much they annoy each other and how little they trust each other, and yet the fact that they still stick together mission after mission for some reason. Well, anyway, the target of TechNet's ire, Excalibur, is just sitting around the breakfast table in their lighthouse headquarters. They've had a long night. Uh, they've been working to rescue people from a derailed train, and they've gotten all of the press for it. And Kurt's actually pretty annoyed by this because the coverage has played up Excalibur's involvement and basically ignored the human rescue workers who actually did most of the work. I actually really like that Alan Davis pays attention to details like that. You know, the fact that in a universe with superheroes, the superheroes, by virtue of being colorful and interesting and unexpected, would steal a lot of the glory from people just doing their jobs. Yeah, Excalibur's relationship to the public and the press, because they're a very public and because they're a nationally based superhero team, is something you see a lot of in this run. And it's something that, for me, is is an ongoing plus to this and also a really interesting ongoing contrast to what you see in, in contemporary X-Men throughout the run of Excalibur, where, where, where the relationship of X-Men to the public and the press really varies and is, is, is much more antagonistic. And Excalibur is just sort of, yeah, Excalibur is just sort of around. They are, they are a national fixture. Well, Megan's making breakfast after this long night when suddenly one of the eggs in her pot of boiling water catapults out of it, screaming and bouncing off appliances and people's faces and stuff. My, what a remarkable egg. I wonder where it could have come from. Well, we the readers know Excalibur doesn't, but Alan Davis just nails the comic timing as they just watch all of this going on, and as Captain Britain says, I'll just have toast. This is one of my favorite things about Davis is that he knows how to pace panels, how to speed up or slow down action, how to show characters just simply reacting. Like, you know, the record scratch getting a look from a dog thing in movie trailers. Alan Davis does the comic book equivalent of that, except it's always novel and clever and wonderful. It's not quite the record scratch getting a look from the dog. What Davis is generally doing on Excalibur is basically classic screwball comedy. And he's doing it exquisitely, and he's translating those timing beats, as, as Miles said, just fantastically to, to static comics pages. So the egg cracks open and out comes... A yellow cartoon chick with a countdown clock on its noggin, looking and acting basically like Henry the Chicken Hawk, but colored and speaking like Tweety Bird. And the chick explodes and the top of the lighthouse blows off. This chick is hard-boiled Henry, and hard-boiled Henry will improbably, having just exploded, actually be back later. He's going to show up in Al Ewing's run on Rocket. Uh, listeners, if you haven't read this run, it's only like six issues, I think. It's glorious. It's hard-boiled detective madness starring Rocket Raccoon and TechNet, and it's all one big heist with a bunch of different double crosses. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's wonderful. All right, so TechNet, speaking of TechNet, watches the lighthouse blow up and realizes that they have made one critical error. They were supposed to capture Phoenix not kill her, but Gatecrasher decides they're going to be fine. They're just going to run with it. No problem. We're bounty hunters. Ruthless bounty hunters. Dead or alive, it's the same thing. Saturnine's a cruel, vicious, cold-hearted cow. She'll understand. They teleport in and find themselves on top of a still very alive Excalibur. They start to prepare their quarry for trans... 
transit, but it turns out Excalibur was pretty much playing possum and a huge brawl ensues as it is wont to do when these two teams come into contact. And one of the reasons I love TechNet so much as antagonists is that their various powers, presumably just, you know, due to them being from a bunch of different alien races, are bizarre. They're shrinking people and befuddling other people and making other people turn into wax or have their dreams or nightmares suddenly come true. Yeah, and we're not we're not going to do a rundown of who's who in TechNet at this point, just because it doesn't matter a whole lot. You know who Gatecrasher is. Gatecrasher is the most important one. Um and we'll we'll bring the others up in context as as they come up, but we'll link back to an episode where we've talked about them at more length. The fight continues, and Captain Britain is just getting pummeled by Gatecrasher, who's punching him again and again, and then she stops, and he keeps grunting from the expectation of her continuing punches. Again, Davis's comedy is great. Technut has apparently, for some reason, been frozen in place. This is the work, as we will learn, of Horatio Cringebottom, representative of the Ministry for Cross-Time Transport Regulation, Monitor and Control, Sanction Implementation Department, and his sidekick, Bert, who simply says, Hi-oh! I love Bert. Bert has sunglasses with a little band around the top that just says what's ever on his mind, and giant, giant hair. Uh, he's pretty great. I would like a pair of those sunglasses. You would look good in them. Yeah, you should get some. So apparently, Cringebottom and Bert just want to take a look at Widget, you know, the time-space-crossing metal head with big sort of frog eyes on it, because Widget, despite Saturnine's reprogramming at the end of the cross-time caper, is apparently still messing with the space-time continuum. Yeah, uh, Bert opens Widget up and discovers that while its exterior is brilliant and futuristic looking, its innards are basically partly rotten baked beans, an apple core, transistor bits, a rubber spider, a key. You may recall way back in Excalibur number one that this is the stuff that Tweedledope of the Crazy Gang was just sort of randomly feeding Widget for no particular reason. One of the things I love most about Davis's run is that he brings back every goddamn plot point that has ever been present in Excalibur. It's just such a love letter to everything that's come before. Bert can't figure out how the hell Widget is doing what Widget does, but he puts a gadget in, in Widget that theoretically should prevent cross-time travel. He and Horatio give Excalibur a hollow crystal from Saturnine, and five minutes before TechNet will wake up and presumably resume brawling. So, of course, Nightcrawler has an idea. They're going to move TechNet around just a little bit where they're frozen in place so that they all pummel and shrink and waxify and whatever each other. This is a fairly classic gag, but it's a classic gag because it never really stops being fairly funny, and it plays out pretty well here. One of my favorite things is that Gatecrasher, as she's hit with Scatterbrain's power, says simply, Flubadub! Yeah, Scatterbrain does pretty much what her name implies. She also feeds off of strong emotions and has one of the best character designs. Man, I love her. I, want, I wish people would cosplay TechNet. Seriously? Now I'm trying to think of who I could be. I don't know. Very few of them are all that humanoid looking. I guess I could be Pharaoh too. You know, whoever you're playing in TechNet, it's going to involve a lot of prosthetics and makeup, so I wouldn't worry too much about trying to find a visual match for yourself. Now, a character who would, would be... Either easier or more difficult to cosplay, probably more difficult for you because you've got quite a lot of beard and she does not, is Opal Luna Saturnine, who has, again, sent a message. And what she has to say is that TechNet's contract to retrieve Phoenix is ended, they're not going to get paid, and they are exiled to Earth-616 indefinitely, basically for being a huge pain. 
So that is, needless to say, a very unpleasant surprise. This isn't entirely surprising to we the readers, because like you referenced earlier, Jay, Saturnine did actually have Phoenix in her hands uh, for a while at the end of the cross-time caper and chose to pretend that she didn't notice that she was there. Yeah, that was back in Excalibur 23. Now, Technet, who is much more surprised, is furious. They are about to mutiny, so Gatecrasher and her weird little lizard friend Yap teleport away, leaving the rest of Technet to their own devices. And Technet does what one does in times of adversity and looks for allies in strange places and basically tells Excalibur, look, if we can live with you, we'll fix up the lighthouse and, you know, stop bounty hunting you. You cool? We cool? Captain Britain hates this idea so much, and honestly, he's probably right, but Nightcrawler points out, much to Megan's joy, that, well, if they take TechNet in, at least it'll keep him off the streets until they can figure out what to do with TechNet. Excalibur has a long history of taking in peculiar and destructive strays, and Captain Britain never likes it, and it's always pretty funny, so I'm on team let's take him in. Also, you know, it's TechNet, and I love TechNet. Always happy to see more of them. And also, of a new character on a new world. Because we're going to take a look at Earth-148, also known as Erath, an ancient world, parallel to ours but near its end because time flows so much faster there, where an evil cultist type is telling survivors of a burning village that they must submit to Necrom. So, are we to understand that the general Edgar Rice Burrowsiness of this place is a result of the fact that it's further along its timeline and that this is the future we have to look forward to? I'm just saying, like, if we assume that society, generally speaking, with admittedly some fits and starts, progresses, then yes, a Princess of Mars-style Edgar Rice Rice Burroughs stuff is basically just inherently more advanced than us. And given the costumes and the swords and the swashbuckling and all that good stuff, I, I feel pretty good about that. I mean, their metal pants technology is definitely at least decades ahead, if not centuries. Indeed it is, because this presumably evil priest is suddenly killed by a badass warrior wearing gold and red armor, sort of a cross between Conan the Barbarian and Lion-O of the Thundercats. This is Kylan, and he is awesome. Kylan is a big deal, and like any proper fantasy hero, he shows up and introduces himself properly. Cold steel and a brave heart are all it takes. I am Kylan. Kylan! We thought you legend! I am real, but I am one. It will take an army to breach the tower that crosses time and defeat the tyrant's Necrom. Join me! And then he vows revenge on the people responsible for this state of affairs. Excalibur? Bois? So, I should point out, this is not Kylan's first appearance in Excalibur, but it's his first appearance under that name. We saw him way, way back in Excalibur number two, and I'm going to give you one more issue's worth of discussion to try to guess who he's going to turn out to be eventually. But in the meantime, we'll be cutting back and forth between Erath and the Earth-616 we know and love for a little while, just about every issue. Speaking of issues, here's another one. We are on Excalibur number 43, Home Comforts, or Who Exploded the Toilet? And this issue features one of the all-time great Alan Davis Excalibur covers, and one of the most memorable. It's Kitty Pride standing very still in front of a huge technicolored fight scene and saying, very frankly, 
Although this issue has been approved by the Comics Code, the editor-in-chief thought it was advisable to warn that some of the material inside may be offensive to natives of Alpha Centauri. That brings me right back to that early Excalibur cover with the janitor on it talking about how if you want a badass cover full of heroes and fights, you had to look inside for all that. Yeah, I will say the Excalibur number four cover is still my all-time favorite, but this is a close one. I actually made a Valentine out of this cover a few years ago. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, it was a good one. So Technet is still staying in the lighthouse, or the most of a lighthouse, as the case may be, the top half having been blown off. And Captain Britain, who is not a patient man at the best of times, is on his last nerve. There's no quiet. Uh, Technet's quote-unquote repair efforts are basically breaking the lighthouse or what's left of it one piece at a time. He's getting more and more jealous of Megan and Kurt, and even more so when Kurt says Megan's name in his sleep mid-makeout dreams. So that dream is actually what opens the issue. It's Nightcrawler and Megan doing like acrobatic-y stuff in a big danger room looking jungle gym while wearing very tight slash very skimpy clothing. And I gotta say, that scene and the clear and intense chemistry between the characters made me feel kind of funny when I read this as a kid. Davis does sexy really, really well and usually in a way that doesn't feel at all exploitative because, I mean, that's kind of part of the character's dynamic and it works so well. Well, what comes across really clearly in this scene is the mutuality of it. I think that's really nice. We're not just seeing Megan through Kurt's eyes. We're seeing the two of them through each other's. Admittedly, it's just Kurt's dream. But yeah, you get the impression Megan might think of him in a similar way. Well, apparently his dream involves enthusiastic consent. So go Nightcrawler. Yay! Now, in, in addition to all of this stuff, Captain Britain also has an unwelcome parasite attached to him. Scatterbrain has just latched on and is floating behind him everywhere because he's really pissed off and she eats strong emotions. So he's basically like a fantasy buffet right now. Shadowcat's doing her best to be a model of patience to be the mature one until... Bodybag eats her favorite teddy bear and then explodes, destroying the one working bathroom with one of the best sound effects and best, most appropriate sound effects of all time. Bathroom! Oh, I love it so much. Don't worry, body bag's okay. Body bag just got real, real sick, and now there's an exploded toilet. Now, two of the residents of the lighthouse, at least, are very much enjoying cohabiting. Um, and we learn this when Captain Britain, still in search of some peace and quiet, walks in on numbers, Technet's accountant, and the dragon from Nazi Excalibur's train doing some sex in the basement. It's Actually, it's super adorable. I, I really want them to live happily ever after. It really is, but it's also just such a wonderful um, escalation as Captain Britain just sees things that are more and more implausible when they already start out implausible. And this is sort of the capstone. Okay, the giant purple dragon we got from another Nazi dimension and this big bug-eyed lizard accountant dude from the guys who were trying to kill us are now fucking. Why do I live here? Why is this my life? I mean, you chose the fucking amulet, man. <laughs> if you'd chosen the sword, this would have gone much better. Actually, it totally wouldn't have, as we find out in a miniseries years and years later, but still. And Captain Britain decides he's going to take advantage of the one repair that actually seems to be going well, which is, is a zero-G elevator, but doesn't quite work out, and he gets catapulted through the roof, bringing down what few pieces of the top of the tower they've been able to fix. Captain Britain is done, and the second he sees Nightcrawler helping Megan up, he flies off the handle and he attacks Nightcrawler, and they fight until Megan finally intervenes. Stop it. Please stop it. You're scaring me. I, I don't understand why you're doing this. You're meant to be friends. 
Rachel said you're fighting over me, but I'm not a thing. Nobody can own me. I gave my heart to you, Brian, and I love my friends like a family. You made me feel safe. You're all so much cleverer than I am. I thought you understood. My power makes me something I'm not. Like the people I'm with or what they want me to be. I can't control it. I don't even know what I really should look like. I can't remember my parents, my real family. You made me feel safe. Now it's like I've done something wrong. Damn, go Megan. Davis has her voice down so perfectly. I think he writes my favorite Megan by a pretty wide margin. Yeah, he writes these relationship dynamics really, really, really well because there's a lot that's very fucked up about them. And when they get played as idyllic, it's kind of upsetting. And Davis does a very good job of humanizing all of the characters involved without trying to tone down the extent to which they're also kind of fuck-ups in a lot of ways. So she flies off for some alone time and uh, Chase and Captain Britain and Kurt decide to try to talk it out on the beach by the lighthouse. And as they do, we realize Kurt's leg got pretty injured in the fight. It's actually broken. And to the book's credit, he's going to be in a cast for quite a while. Yay for continuity. And yay for really good dialogue and characters that grow and evolve. Like, Brian and Kurt are actually pretty mature. I kind of wish they'd had this uh, conversation 42 issues ago. Or at least before deciding to have a beach-bound slugfest. Captain Britain explains... When I was independent, I felt competent, effective, in control. But since Excalibur teamed up, I've had occasion to doubt my abilities. At times, I felt I could do nothing right. My pride was dented and my confidence eroded. I started to resent that the girls looked up to you for leadership, especially Megan. It seemed to be more than friendship, and when you called out her name in your sleep... You assumed the worst. I've been a fool. An irrational fool. Not so. Your instincts were correct. I found myself attracted to Megan from first we met. Who would not be? Crim reality fails to taint her innocent enthusiasm. That zest for life is intoxicating. Are you in love with her? Nine. And Megan is true to you. But you dream about her. Sometimes she transforms into the embodiment of all I desire. Once I almost kissed her, understanding that she is an empathic metamorph does not make the fantasy easier to resist. My dream is a penance, an acceptance of guilt and shame. I fear my weakness. So we've talked about Nightcrawler as the antithesis of the nice guy TM in terms of his relationship to Megan. And I think this is a pretty good breakdown of why and of the thought process that goes into that on his part. Exactly, because, I mean, the fact is, over the course of a person's life, assuming they're not aromantic or asexual or whatever, you're going to be attracted to a lot of people that it's a really bad idea to be attracted to, either logistically or ethically or whatever. Or in which cases it's a bad idea to act on that attraction. I think that's a really important distinction to make. Exactly. But Nightcrawler is very good and in practice, historically very good at a distinguishing between his feelings about Megan and the actions that he should or actually wants to take. And also at being a friend to her during this and not treating that friendship like, and I'm going to paraphrase, I don't remember the, the writer online, but, but like a machine where you put kindness in the slot and get sex. <laughs> right. Like he's not trying to win her away from Captain Britain because she's not a fucking prize, she's a person. 
And so I like the fact that Nightcrawler can be just a little bit sleazy without being a jerk. I love the nuance. I love the shades of gray that Davis allows all these characters to have. It's not even sleaziness. He and Megan flirt, and that's a component of their friendship. But part of what makes it work for both of them, and I think they've been fairly explicit about it on the page before, is that neither of them is actually going to act on it. It's a dynamic that they're free to explore socially without having to worry about it escalating otherwise. Yeah, although, I mean, it probably would have been worth a conversation a while earlier. I think it would have saved a lot of people a lot of grief. Yeah, but they're all really awkward. And as as we know from the fact that they took as long as they did to get in touch with the X-Men, communication is not Excalibur's strong suit. Legit. And this one time that they're successfully doing it, well, that doesn't work out either, because before Brian can finish apologizing to Kurt... A cadre of Captain Britain Corps members shows up from the multiverse to arrest him. That's right. Captain Britain has broken morality code number 9222765, paragraph 476W, and he is off to Otherworld to stand trial. Speaking of other worlds that are not specifically called Otherworld... Meanwhile, on another plane of existence... Which, which is actually the panel used to segue here in, in one of the more delightful moments... Many beguiling lies later. Yeah, no, Excalibur and Alan Davis's Excalibur is just an unmitigated cascade of delight. So, so anyway, on this other plane of existence, specifically Erath, Kylan has freed the Princess Satinine. You didn't think I'd let you down, Princess. And tells her that together they are bound to def- defeat Necrom because... We're the good guys. The good guys always win. This guy seems to know an awful, awful lot of Earth cultural references from, for an Erath barbarian. There's a reason for that. He didn't exactly grow up on Earth, but he spent his formative years there because this kid, Kylan's name, is a bastardization of Colin. He is Colin McKay, the kid who met Widget way back in Excalibur number two in an old train yard and got portaled into another dimension never to be seen again. Praises unto you, Alan Davis, for remembering a dangling plot thread from 40 issues ago and turning it into something legitimately awesome. I love Kylan. Kylan was a main character for a little bit, and then he just disappeared, and nobody ever mentions him anymore, and that makes me sad. Kylan's so good. Kylan has his own shit to do, man. He is out of Excalibur's league in a lot of ways. Not in a he's better than them or they're better than him way, just in like... He's playing soccer and they do baseball type thing. Like, he belongs to a different genre. Barbarian soccer. Fuck yeah. That brings us to Excalibur number 44, Witless for the Prosecution. Man, Alan Davis, you are so goofy. He should basically title everything. So we go to Otherworld, which is, of course, the realm of Roma, the veritable center of the multiverse, where an awesomely mustached Captain Britain from some dimension or another reads a list of our Captain Britain's crimes ending with Brian's unprovoked attack on Nightcrawler. Brian's plea is simply... (coughs) Because he's gagged, and Captain UK... You remember Linda McQuillan, originally of Earth-238, that got destroyed in the Captain Britain series, and now of Earth-839? Well, she's volunteered to defend him. The prosecutor is none other than Hauptmann England. That is the Nazi Captain Britain of Earth-597. Captain UK explains to Brian, after getting him ungagged, how this whole thing works. The various captains Britain, they're each bound by the morality of their home Earths, not by some larger unified morality, she explains. For instance, on Enforcer Capone's world, murder is legal. 
while in Sister Gaia's reality, plucking a flower is an act of gross brutality. That's kind of neat. I actually really like that that's the way the Captain Britain Corps works. It makes sense that a multiversal organization would have some moral relativity there. They'd have to, given the membership that we've seen so far. Speaking of memberships, one of my favorite Captain Britons is Brother Britman65, who is a hippie Captain Britain, and he makes me so, so happy. And I wish we got to see more of him, but I feel like the joke wouldn't be as effective if we did. You just get really excited every time there's a superhero with a beard. It's a really impressive beard. He's got those little round sunglasses and like a headband and the real long hair. Man, Brother Britman, let's hang out. We'll just talk about, you know, peace and stuff. Brother Britman aside, the Captain Britain in question is, is 616 Captain Britain, and his list of crimes continue. He has joined a team instead of running one. He's messed with reality throughout the cross-time caper. He has used another captain's outfit, which is apparently a big taboo. Again, bringing back all the old plot threads. So Captain Britain, he hears all of this. He looks all around him at this nonsense because... He's a simple guy. He just enjoys getting annoyed at all of the all of the ridiculousness around him and punching things and occasionally reminding people that he's a scientist. He also likes the occasional cup of tea. He does. And so he says, you know what? He's going to relieve Captain UK of her liability because right now, if he's found guilty, she will be too, by refusing to accept the authority of the court at all. At which point the court says that means he's accepted his guilt and they're going to kill him. Dick move. We'll find out more about him later, but back on Earth 616, Megan and Rachel have gone off on their own. And they have decided they are heading off to look for Megan's birth family. Megan, Megan's history was originally established in a bunch of um, old Marvel UK stories. She was born in a Romani caravan um, and immediately sprouted fur because it was cold. And she was cold and she was a baby. People panicked And as they did and as they speculated about her nature, she became more and more monstrous to fit their perceptions of her. Her parents kept her inside all day, away from watchful eyes. She was basically raised by television and, in those days at least, affected strongly by the phases of the moon. In part, we get the impression because she thought she was supposed to be from what she saw in old movies. And Davis manages to take this somewhat complex backstory, cram it into a page or two, and have it be perfectly comprehensible, which is probably a good idea because even though the Captain Britain trade paperback had come out in America at this point, these were still some hard stories to find. Yeah, I think it also highlights the other half of Megan's nature as an empathic metamorph. She becomes what people expect her to be And currently, that's basically Brian Braddock's dream girl plus a superhero. But again, what happens when she's confronted with and overcome by very different expectations is is basically the nature of her origin story. So with permission, Rachel Summers telepathically enters Megan's mind to help Megan try to remember some details. But Rachel's confronted by raw emotion, plus these glass-like shards of images of Excalibur, complete with specific panels from old issues, their adventures, various animals. It looks legitimately overwhelming, but also delicate and beautiful, which I think describes Megan's mind pretty well. And Rachel immediately pulls away and panics. She needs to stay out of Megan's head because... It reminds her too much of her own, um, the structure of the memories in it. Megan chooses to live fully in the present. Rachel is basically stuck there from a combination of trauma and to avoid what she knows are implanted false memories. 
And this apparently is why they've had so much psychic overlap in the past. It's only ever been alluded to briefly. I think the most explicit example we saw was at one point in the cross time caper due to some nonsense or another. They woke up wearing each other's clothes with each other's hair. Again, let's just take every single freaking plot point from the entire history of the series and bring it all up and make it somehow work. This is like the antithesis of what's going on in the X-Men books at this point. Now, speaking of bringing bringing on plot points, Rachel is able to get a little useful information that they should follow up with the Scott family in London. These these guys, again, featured heavily in the old Marvel UK stories, and I believe in, in some of the, the subsequent Captain Britain stuff. They knew Megan early on, and they might be able to help. So the pair of them go over to meet the Scots uh, in their England home, and they're super welcoming to Megan, despite the fact that their kid died in one of her first appearances, and it was kind of Captain Britain and Megan's fault, but only kind of. But we learned that they really bonded with Brian and Megan after that, and it's actually really charming the way it's written. It kind of reminds me of the scene in Walter Simonson's run on Thor, where Thor and his identity of Sigurd Jarlson after Odin dies, goes and hangs out with the family of his boss, Jerry Saprissi, and it's just really domestic and wonderful, and the normal people are super welcoming to the superheroes. It's great. Is that the one where we were convinced that um, his host and the host's wife were angling for a threesome? Uh, that is, in fact, the one. Okay, just checking. Yeah, that's not going on here. <laughs> nope. Now, an interesting thing happens as Rachel Summers meets these people who are just so open and welcoming and don't question anything, as the captions tell us. Rachel is suddenly aware that her heavy psychic armor and destructive potential is a treacherous deceit to the unguarded sincerity of these ordinary people. So she wills the Phoenix Force to be dormant for the first time since she bonded with it. This part doesn't make a lot of sense to me, and I think that's especially in contrast, given the clarity of everything else that goes on in these issues. It's going to contribute to some plot points, but as motivations go, I don't know about this one. But you know what? Davis has everything else right here in the pass. She's repressing like a true Summers. Good point. Okay, it all comes together. I take back everything I said. So they do find a lead as they talk to the Scots. Apparently there's a Romani woman named Madame Zelda nearby who set herself up as a fortune teller. So it's kind of a lead. I mean, you know, the same vague ethnic group, I guess. No, well, what they say specifically is that the, the Romani caravan that used to camp there was all driven away. None of them have come back except for one, one woman who decided to stay and set up shop as a fortune teller. So they do know that Zelda is, is from the same at least rough group as Megan's parents. And Megan goes up to ask, and Zelda has, in fact, heard of Megan. She says that, that Megan's parents have gone to France. And she also points out, when Megan asks what else the crystal ball says, that the crystal ball is a scam, which makes Rachel say, okay, this Zelda was actually being upfront with you, which I enjoy as a skeptic myself. Right fucking on. Now, before that happens, Rachel goes in to see what's up with Megan, because Megan's been a long time, and suddenly she gets in a fight with an invisible energy monster wielding a jeweled dagger from this shop front. And then she's arrested after the demon monster thing disappears by a guy named Micromax. He's a size-changing superhero who works for the never-as-far-as-I-know-defined FI6, some sort of governmental something or other. Micromax has been tracking thefts of rare artifacts, and he thinks Rachel did it. This comes out of nowhere, and I kind of like that fact. Well, first of all, I assume that FI6 is a riff on an MI6. I'm sure it is, but we never find out what the F stands for. Second, Micromax is actually going to end up eventually joining Excalibur briefly. 
and showing up again periodically pretty much whenever X-Men needs a random guy who isn't being used in other books to be kind of a government stooge. One of the things that um, Micromax always brings me back to is the trading cards of this era. I'm going to be talking a lot about early 90s trading cards because I was super into them back in the day. But the trading cards often didn't have a lot to go on as far as what was going to happen. Like they presumably had to be prepared before they came out. There was some kind of lead time. So the trading card creators had to guess what was going to be a big deal. And so Micromax shows up as a major Excalibur character in the cards. And he actually wouldn't do all that much in the comics. And once Davis stops writing, he mostly disappears, barring the occasional instance like the one you mentioned, Jay. Even when Davis is writing, Micromax is really never going to be what I'd describe as a major character in, in anything but stature. Well, anyway, back at the lighthouse, Professor Alistair Stewart is heading up the walk to a tower that now looks like basically, well, there's no basically about it. It looks like a giant mushroom, and Alistair is heartily amused. I mean, look, TechNet works with what they know. Basically that. Alistair's plan is to ask Rachel, who we know he has a giant crush on, if she would like to accompany him on his sabbatical to Ireland. But he opens the door to the lighthouse. And immediately finds himself thrust into the middle of a massive TechNet brawl. He's luckily knocked into the new Zero-G elevator, which is working now, which takes him upstairs to where Kurt and Kitty are hanging out. Rachel, as it turns out, is gone, but Kitty would be more than happy to accompany Alistair because she is super in love with him. And Davis draws her as just so dreamy-eyed and earnest. Like, you don't often think of an artist as having specifically the skill to draw crushes, but Davis, um crushes it. Oh, you did that. And man, I this this takes me right back to the Valentines and the fact that I, I just want there to be Alan Davis Excalibur Valentines. I really do. Yeah, fuck it. I'm, I'm just going to make some for this year. They're going to happen. It's going to be there. I like this plan. Um, Alistair sort of reluctantly accepts not knowing what else to do and trying to avoid further awkwardness. But he also asks why TechNet are having a giant brawl downstairs. I mean, is this something that they should be worried about? To which Kurt responds... It is their lunch break, because TechNet. And no sooner have Alistair and Kitty headed out, presumably to Ireland, than Inspector Di Thomas of Scotland Yard shows up with his psychic friend. Yeah, this is a woman who, I guess, assists the police uh, in their investigations, which is a thing police officers actually do for some goddamn reason. Okay, I would like to take a moment to explain police psychics here. Okay. In our Earth... They're not real and frequently end up doing significantly more harm than good. However, I was thinking about this. I immediately bristled at this scene. I have a lot of very strong feelings about people who think they can talk to the dead, especially. Anyway, <laughs> I, I initially brist bristled at this scene and then remembered that, oh no, this actually takes place in a universe where psychics are a documentable phenomenon. So presumably there are, in fact, just ones who work with the police. And that's cool. That works in this universe. That's cool. You don't, don't morally gen generalize from 616. You know, that actually makes a great deal of sense. I feel much better about this. I also like this lady because she politely asks if she can pet Kurt's fur, and he says sure, and she says that his fur feels like velvet, which, you know what? Yeah, I fully believe that it would. And in that moment, she was all of us. <laughs> right. Now... Kurt says that Excalibur is out and he's injured, so unfortunately he can't really help Di in this psychic. Di asks, well, what about those weird aliens who are watching Sesame Street downstairs? I mean, they look like they have powers, right? 
Aw, TechNet's watching Sesame Street? <laughs> of course they are. Sesame Street's very educational, and you know, they're kind of new to Earth-616, so I think it's a great plan. Well, and in dire need of basic socialization, very clearly. So I actually, I love that idea. I love, you know, you always have aliens who learned about Earth culture from, like, sitcoms. Why do we never see ones who learned about Earth norms and social norms from kids' shows that are literally meant to teach that stuff? Oh, man, if they watched Reading Rainbow, like, they would just gain such a love for storytelling and the creativity that exists within all of us. Like, I gotta say, you could take basically any superhero team or any supervillain team, and if they had a really open mind and just watched some of the better children's television out there, like, they would just become upstanding, wonderful people. You'd lose half your soap opera plots, to be fair. Very few people would go evil and destroy the universe, but it would be lovely. And that's why public television funding is important. Yes. Thank you, Sesame Street, for saving the world countless times when we didn't even realize it. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men. Against police psychics, pro-PBS. Exactly. So that's what's setting up the next few plot lines for the next handful of issues. And if this seems like we're stopping our coverage pretty much arbitrarily, well, it's because we are. Because Excalibur number 42 through 50 are basically just one big storyline. We have lots of different threads. It kind of reminds me of early to mid Chris Claremont X-Men. There weren't arcs, there were just plot threads. And one of the things about pacing out a podcast like this is we need we we need to and we try to look not only at the amount of material, the amount of plot that we need to cover, but the amount that, for instance, we want to rave about one of our favorite runs and how much we want to stretch it out as long as we conceivably can, because it's going to end someday. And we don't want that day to arrive. We don't. So we'll tell you about one last scene, once again on Earth-148, once again on Erath, as Kylan and his princess battle companion lover Saturnine, who clearly is this universe's version of Saturnine, lead the charge against Necrom's forces. There's not really much dialogue. It's just two awesome pages full of awesome battle on an awesome alien world. I could get lost in this. It's like a Where's Waldo double-page spread if it wasn't about finding a little dude, but it was just about finding every awesome alien fight with teeth and claws and acid and screaming and flying and blades and yelling and heroism. It's a little Paul Smith feeling, isn't it? It, it really is, yeah. But just with so much more energy than, like, any other artist can do. So those are our first few issues of Alan Davis's run on Excalibur. And we can say right now, it stays good. Yeah, it's, it's terrific. Speaking of people who stay good, you. And you've got questions. Thomas asks via email, does Kitty Pride feel temperature extremes while she's phased? Based on what I've been able to dig up from the comics, sort of. As far as I can tell, extreme temperatures don't affect her when she's phased, um, assuming that she's fully phased. However, she can only maintain that state for as long as basically she can hold her breath under the majority of circumstances. So there's that. And... Sometimes she seems at least aware of external temperatures, although they don't seem to, you know, face her. Boo. I mean, yay. I mean, boo. I don't know how to feel about that. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm kind of ashamed of myself personally, but, you know, you do you. Well, that's a really good question. Um, Kitty Pride, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, please let us know. But, but for the most part, and from what we've seen, the answer is, is that she's not, she's not affected in the ways that a, a human body would normally be affected by, by extreme temperatures. The extent to which she perceives and senses them is, is more up in the air. An exercise left to the writer. Jackie Pop asks on Tumblr, 
I was wondering if you read the recent X-Men Gold Annual about the Excalibur reunion. What are your opinions on it? And furthermore, what's up with the Braddocks having a super intelligent baby? Is there any previous context for that? I am so glad you asked this, Jacket Pop. Actually, before we put in this question, we had this as the first thing we were going to talk about in the episode. So X-Men Gold Annual number one, which just came out, is written by Mark Guggenheim and Leah Williams. As I understood it, um, Mark Guggenheim plots and Leah Williams scripts. It's got pencils by Aletha Martinez. It is genuinely so charming. And specifically, it features two things that we feel very strongly about. One of them is essentially an Excalibur reunion. We've got Megan, Brian... Kurt, Kitty, and Rachel all back in one place. And second, Rachel, through all of this, is wearing one of our t-shirts, which is super cool. It's um, David Wynn's Lila Cheney t-shirt that David Wynn designed, and I'll link to that in the visual companion, but it's super awesome, and and now it's canon, and that's really great, because it's a really good t-shirt, and it's it's the design that I, I got David to do so that I could buy one and own it, so yeah. It's so great. Um, But yeah, so it's like a lightweight story. There's not a whole lot to it. It's mainly just the lot of them hanging out with a brief encounter with a villain. But it's just so good to see the characters together again. And the story just oozes admiration for the Claremont and the Davis eras. Yeah, I think the art is a bit stronger than the writing. But Martinez definitely has some of that Davis buoyancy going. And it's really, really a delight to see. Also, Captain Britain wears a beard very well. He really, really does. He looks kind of like a character from Dream Daddy, and I feel great about that. But I would actually love to see uh, Leah Williams work with Guggenheim more. Like, the two of them, I think they make a solid team, and I think X-Men Gold would be a better book with both of them working on it instead of just Guggenheim writing. As far as Baby Maggie, who is is hyper-intelligent, there's not really any previous context, but I feel like between the two of them, Captain Britain and Megan probably have the genetic potential to produce pretty damn near anything. So a super smart baby kind of on the normal side of the options. Yeah, I mean, Captain Britain, he's not a mutant, but he's all this mystical stuff, and Megan may or may not be a mutant, depending on which writer and which era you ask, but there's a lot going on, I totally agree. Well, and Brian's twin sister is a mutant, so we know at least that that runs in his family. That's true, yeah. Also worth noting, there's a second story in the annual called Why I Love the X-Men, which is by Monty Nero and Jabril Morissette fan, and it's Lovely. Again, it's relatively lightweight, but it's just got so much straightforward earnestness. Like, this annual just made me feel really good and smile a whole lot, and not just because our t-shirt was in it. That was cool, too, though. Yeah, I think I'm marginally less overall enthused than you are, but I did enjoy it. Um, Again, I think Martinez's art is the absolute standout star of the issue, aside from that rad t-shirt. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, it's, 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 it's two fun, feel-good stories. Our podcast is fully supported by our generous and amazing listeners, and some of those levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional concepts and or characters. Let's start, as we often do, with the angry Claremontian narrator. Thought you could find some peace and quiet, Matthew Coberline? Maybe that's something you should have considered before inviting Kurt Conley and his many-limbed friends into your house. Or, you know, becoming a superhero or any of the large number of increasingly terrible life choices you've so far made. For a change of pace, I believe the mic now goes to Sexy Kylan. It will not just take an army to free Erath from the vile forces of Necrom. It will take a man. And a man is what I am, from my rugged and yet strangely silky fur, to the armored leggings that nonetheless hug every curve of my perfect butt. What of you, Jack and Daniel? 
Are you willing to take up blades against evil, to protect yourselves from harm while still granting the world a scandalous look at your well-honed forms, and to gallantly rescue and roguishly seduce the royalty of your choice? Join me, and Necrom's reign shall end, if not by force, then by our sheer, unbridled virility. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. And if you listen on any of those formats, please leave us a review. That helps a lot. Check out explainthexmen.com for extra content, including visual companions to every episode. And be sure to come see us at Emerald City Comic Con the first weekend of March. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the Cold War heats up and grows tentacles. As Omega Red bursts onto the pages of X-Men. Mm-hmm.